1: You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. Welcome to
0: Always Right Radio with Bob Franz on Aya 1420,
2: The Answer. Onward we roll. Into hour number two now, nine minutes past ten o'clock. It is a Tuesday, the fourth morning of the 10th month of the year of our Lord, 2022. Thanks again to Jim Jordan. A lot of ground covered there. He's got a lot of very important work to do, and his workload is going to increase exponentially after November 8th when he has to prepare to become the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee rather than just the ranking member. The investigations will be fast and furious. All right. uh, Since, like I said, it's the Daily Double, here's the uh, back half. I love it when Jordan has to move from Monday to Tuesday because then we're able to give you Jordan and Kersenau back to back. And let's welcome uh, Peter Kirstenau. I almost called him Congressman Peter Kirstenau. Let's welcome uh, United States Civil Rights Commissioner Peter Kirstenau to his regular Tuesday visit on the program. Pete, good morning. It's the fourth uh, of uh, October, and I still haven't seen Kirstenau for a play yet. What the hell's going on?
3: You know, and you know, look at the Browns' record. Speaks for ah! itself. Well One play could have been the difference on Sunday. You know, golf clap.
2: <laughs> yeah, that little five yard out to, uh, out could have been the difference when they couldn't get that could've one been. yard. They, they, they had two different, two different plays, I think. And I, cause I don't watch it. I just read it. Uh, I think they were, what, they, they were on the two and on the one on two different occasions and came away with a combined three points. Yep. Uh, so that's, yeah, that's, that's a bad, that's, that, that's, that's, that's not good football. They should have hit now on the out. So I don't know what they're waiting for. And and from what I heard or read, there's a couple of drop balls as well. So you know, I don't know, Pete. Uh, get out there in front of the jug, show them what you got, right? Yeah, right. Exactly. You know, just one play.
3: One play can make the difference, especially. You know, I mean, three points. One play could have made the difference. And uh, I'm no longer fast, but I'm fast enough. I've got better strength than their wide receivers. And I am downright mean. If they throw the ball to me, I don't care what happens. The defensive back is going down. I am catching the ball, period. End of story.
2: Love it. Love the attitude. Hey, you know what? We have a lot of important things to talk about, but just super quick since we just hit the sports thing for fun. There was an article, uh, uh, MRC um, MR, uh, 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 Media Media, what is it? Media Media Research Center, I think it is. Yep. Uh, they 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 were they were doing a piece on uh, the attendance. You know, the Indians are like the unbelievable story of the season. Right, uh, they are the youngest team in baseball. They are uh, they have like sixteen guys on the roster right now who are in their first years, uh, or first years playing at at this level. I can't remember all the specifics about it, but. They have the one of the lowest payrolls, one of the top two or three or bottom two or three lowest payrolls in baseball, and yet they won ninety plus games now and are on their way to the playoffs. Yet they average uh, the twenty fifth most fans in the uh, uh, in the regular season. Uh, for out, uh, out of thirty baseball teams, and the article from the Media Research Center blames it on uh, the name Guardians. Blames it on uh, the fact that they went woke. That 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 too many fans, hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of Indians fans were Indians fans, and they hated the fact that they caved into political correctness and they wouldn't support it. And <laughs> so I posted that, and guess what? Some you know the overwhelming number of comments said, "That's me. I haven't watched the pitch." Yep. That's me. I Haven't watched a, a series. You know, I, I'm just done. I can't. I can't take it. So, yeah, I watched... go broke. Right.
3: Yeah, exactly. Uh, I saw that there was a 39 percent decline in viewership. 39 percent. It's one thing when it's yeah, 3% they covered that too. The TV you know? side, yeah extraordinary that that's where the real revenue comes from right there you know the tv contracts and the media contracts um you know i've watched a few games they're a good team they're an entertaining team as you said uh, especially when you consider their youth i I don't know half these guys i'm more than half these guys i've never heard of before you know but i've been i've I've watched a few games and they've been credible i mean look they've won a number of games but you're right um I've talked to a lot of people who, you know, a lot of people from out of town, for example, who say, what the heck is a guardian? You know, and I mentioned to them right now, Bob, it just so happens I'm looking straight at the monument of the guardians. And to the left of that, of course, is the stadium, my, my, my office overlooks, I can look at first base, home plate, and third base in the stadium, and I'm looking right at the monument of the guardians that goes across the bridge. I've been living in Cleveland my entire life. I never knew what those things were. I, passed, I probably passed them a thousand times in my lifetime. I didn't know they were called guardians, and I don't care. <laughs> Nobody Cared about the name Indians, except for a few people. I don't want to just dismiss their concerns, but to think that, it, it, let me back up for just a second. I don't want to be dwelling on this. A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, we had a hearing at the Civil Rights Commission, of course, because this is where these things are litigated, related to this, the major burgeoning issue of mascots and team sports, things of that nature. And, um, you know, we, we looked at all these different names and whether or not they were. Or, um defamatory of certain minority groups that might consider them, you know, demeaning. And so we had a lot of so-called, quote-unquote, the, the term is stakeholders In But what we found is when you talk to the activists, yes, they didn't like names like the Redskins or the Indians, but when you talk to ordinary Native Americans and any other group that you can think of uh, after which a team may be named, they liked it. In fact, I still remember distinctly this one. Actually, he was a tribal chieftain. um, But he said, you know, uh, we like it. Um, Two things. One is, nobody names Sports team after a an entity or a thing that you despise or you 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 know you think is is bad or something like that it's a it's a an honor you you name a sports team because of the qualities that the mascot or the name represents such as you don't call the Detroit Lions the Detroit pussycats even though they play that way you don't call the <laughs> Detroit Bears you know I mean you know you know what I mean I do and so. Uh, because certain qualities are maybe stereotypically, but nonetheless, they are related to the mascot. The other thing he said is, Uh, You know, I'm speaking for this guy. I didn't say this, but he said, you know, um, if it weren't for names like Redskins or Indians outside of the Southwest, people would forget about Native Americans.
2: That's what he said. You know, I don't know if that's true or not. I've heard many say that, Peter. I've heard many say that. They hate the idea of their names being removed from sports teams because they really feel like that their entire history and their legacy is going to be erased. Yep. right. And on top of all that,
3: let's face it, names like the Commanders, and the Guardians are such clunky, ridiculous names. When I was growing up, uh, you know, five years old, I remember I was playing, I had my Cleveland Indians cap with Chief Wahoo on there, which, again, I don't think anybody meant that to be demeaning. Uh, most mascots, most team logos are somewhat chimerical. They're, they're somewhat, you know, they're jovial. There's some, um, uh, I I don't know. There,
2: there, there's uh, well, they're there's cartoons. Never... I mean, yeah. I mean, look at the look at the it, Notre exactly. Dame leprechaun. Look at the Notre Dame it, leprechaun. Look at the Cincinnati Reds. It's a guy with a great big giant baseball with a big grinning face as a head. I mean, uh, you know, yep. it's a baseball head. I mean, yeah, they're cartoons. That's not necessarily they, not even necessarily. It's definitely not intended to represent the actual uh, individuals for which they're named.
3: Yeah, activists have obviously done a lot of good in the United States of America. But over the last 30 or 40 years, I think we've achieved peak absurdity when it comes to most advocates, regardless of, uh, you know, activists, regardless of what the issue may be. And in this particular case, they've taken away something that I think a lot of people cherish, especially a lot of people say under the age, over the age of, say, 10, who love the, the Indians, grew up with the Indians. And there was nothing wrong with the name. But nope. I think a lot of people... First of all, they get dislocation anxiety because of the change in the name, especially if you've been, a, if been around for a while like me. Uh, but also, you don't like the fact that your franchise that you rooted for was so pusillanimous that it would cave to something like this. All due respect to the folks at the Indians organization, but they didn't have to do this, and I think it was a big mistake. And it's evidenced by the fact that revenues will be down and are down. No doubt. Yeah. They've no doubt. put together, they, they're smart in putting together a great franchise. They really have. This young team They got the best manager in baseball, in my estimation, they have, everything's Pumping on all cylinders, but attendance and viewership, not where they should be, considering consider back in 1993, 1994, when the Indians were beginning to put together the team of Tomy, Ramirez, and all those folks, you know. I mean, of course, Jacobs Field had just opened, so there was that momentum. But people were excited. We had a young team. The place was packed all the time. Here you've got a young team, and you can't fill the stands. You know, son of a gun. Um, it should tell you something about go woke, go broke Go broke.
2: Yeah. And I'll tell you something, Peter, I, um, eight years ago <clears throat> I was on another station in town and I did Indians uh, broadcast. I did pregame shows, postgame shows and so on and so forth. Thank God, and I really mean that literally. Thank the Lord that I'm not there because I would have had to quit. I couldn't do it. I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't watch it. I wouldn't report on it, particularly because of all of the other things baseball did: yanking the All Star Game from the good people of Atlanta, Georgia, uh, uh, because of uh, you know the, what they called voter suppression and handing uh, and and racial minorities being disenfranchised and putting the All Star Game in Colorado, which is more lily white. Uh, just the insanity of all of that. I couldn't do it. I couldn't support baseball then. I wouldn't be able to do it, I should say. Uh, and I'd end up having to quit. So I'm very, very glad that I'm where I am now so I don't have to do this other than to mock it the way you and I are right now. And by the right.
3: way... Uh, yeah, just ahead.
2: real quick, the, the last thought on this, uh, to to buttress your point about people you've spoken with. Sports Illustrated conducted one of the most recent polls earlier this year. The numbers were consistent with many of the past polls. 83% of Native Americans said the teams should not discontinue the Indian nicknames. Leave them be. 79% of the general public approve of such nicknames. So we are literally catering to a tiny, tiny, tiny minority of people within that uh, demographic, you know, the racial demographic or the you know, indigenous populations, whatever you want to call them, and a tiny population of the overall public in general.
3: One other thought on this is, when you change a name like that, that's been around for a long time, and people have supported that franchise, what you do, and I don't mean to play psychologist here, but all the people who supported, you're saying to them, well, you were racist also. Okay, We're changing that name that you supported, you cheered for. We're we're changing it because it is racist. And by your support, by extension, you were racist. I think that's a demeaning thing to your fans. The fans didn't think that. Native Americans don't think that. I don't know why it happened. At this particular time, for example, the, the protests, remember when they started uh, initially, was when Jacobs Field opened, and there you'd have you know a handful of protesters out there, and good for them. In the United States of America, anybody can do whatever they want to, but 99% of the fans didn't care. They didn't think it was racist. They were supporting a racist franchise. There was no effort on the part of the Cleveland Indians at that time to denigrate um, uh, Native Americans. And again, going back again to the, the litmus test, as applied by the left, and that is Native Americans were not offended by it.
2: Bingo. All right, Peter Kirsten, now it's 1021. We'll take our break here, and here's the segue. Speaking of race, uh, a certain vice president thinks that it should be considered when distributing aid for a hurricane or natural disaster. I'm going to play that clip for you and get your reaction to that on the other side as we continue. Always Right Radio, AM 1420, The
1: Answer. The Answer.
0: Always right. Radio with Bob France on the answer. Ten twenty five. Continuing
2: with cursing out now. All right, Pete. Uh, set your uh, set your dial to enraged, which I think you should be after you hear this.
1: Our uh, lowest income communities and our communities of color that are most impacted by these extreme conditions and and impacted by by issues that are not of their own making. And so I mean- we. When- Absolutely. And so we have to address this in a way that is about giving resources based on equity, understanding that we we fight for equality, but we also need to fight for equity, understanding not everyone starts out at the same place. And if we want people to be in an equal place, sometimes we have to take into account those disparities.
2: So, in other words, if you are a Hurricane Ian victim and you are darker colored, get in line. We've got money for you. If you're lighter colored, what do you think you're doing, you privileged piece of crap? Get out of here. Uh, we're striving for equity. Pete, go ahead.
3: Yeah. Uh, first of all, compliments to the engineer, of course. Uh, phenomenal bumper music. Uh, but number two is um, this is. I don't have to tell your audience this. Uh, I know your audience. <laughs> they look at Kamala Harris and think, how the heck did she graduate from kindergarten? Um, by the way, I taped a segment yesterday that will be on Fox Business Particularly, just especially with respect to this whole issue and the legality uh, thereof. We just finished a um, investigation at the Civil Rights Commission of all places. Of course, Civil Rights Commission doesn't confine itself to, you know, things you, could, you would ordinarily think were the province of civil rights. It's all over the place and uh, almost any volatile issue we're right in front of. And we took a look at the distribution of aid with respect to Hurricane Maria and Hurricane Harvey because the progressives on the commission really wanted to hit Trump and his response. And, of course, they couldn't find anything. Uh, but bottom line here is that it is blatantly unlawful. There is something called the Stafford Act that you would think a lawyer and vice president, which Kamala Harris purports to be both, would know about. And the Stafford Act says that you may not discriminate in the distribution of aid relief with respect to natural disasters, etc., on the basis of immutable characteristics such as race, sex, age, national origin, color, and even mutable characteristics, characteristics such as economic status, because as we all know, floods, hurricanes, fires don't discriminate on the basis of those characteristics. So it's blatantly unlawful what she's suggesting. Also, depending upon how it was implemented, and she didn't get into that, it could implicate the uh, 14th Amendment, Sequel Protection Clause, possibly even 42 U.S.C., 1981, 1983, if it was distributed through state uh, provisions or instrumentalities, maybe some state provisions. Who knows? Bottom line is, it is a travesty, and it is wrong. You don't have to have a law to tell you this is wrong. When in doubt... Pro tip, if you ever think that something may be a problem with respect to race, reverse the races in any example that you're giving and ask yourself, what would have happened had Kamala Harris said, you know, when we distribute this aid with respect to Hurricane Ian, we're going to give it first to white residents, okay? The outrage would be instantaneous and almost cataclysmic. Everybody knows that. It's no less outrageous when you turn it around because of so-called equity. What's amazing to me is, and I said this on Fox, that um, you know you shouldn't just have a press aide come out and try to, and basically lie to try to tell you what you heard was not what you heard. A press, this is not the the province of a press aide for something of this magnitude that's this divisive. The Principal herself, meaning Kamala Harris, needs to come out and correct the record and say, no, 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 no. What I meant by that is, you know, we're going to do our best to try to make sure that it's distributed where the need is, okay? Because the hurricane, you know, affected the coasts, and, you know, there, most people got hurt there on the coast, so we're going to do it there. Like the FEMA director said, come out immediately and corrected the record, okay? But she needs to come out that and, and do something like that because she is the elected representative who said that, that we are going to be racist. And, by the way, they've got a history of this. They were distributing COVID relief in certain areas of the country on the basis of race. You cannot think of anything that is more toxic to the polity than the top levels of the government making it policy to dispense very needed aid relief aid when there's a pandemic or a hurricane a natural disaster on the basis of race extraordinary and this is what the left has been doing forever they they've been not forever but for a long long time um they constantly racialize everything divide americans on the base most americans are like, you know, what's the old statement? Can't we all just get along? Uh, Rodney King. (laughs) King. Most Americans are like that. Leave me alone, especially government. Leave me alone and let me go about my life. Most Americans aren't thinking about race 24-7. But our politicians foisted us, and particularly the the progressive politicians, academia, and these other people who, frankly, they've got to justify their existence. In my terms, I, I don't see what value added they're presenting to the American people. And in many cases, they're detracting from um the, the i so many things about america i could go no. on and on and on
2: yeah, no, yeah, I agree with you, Pete. And, um, you know, it, it, gone are the halcyon days in which we once said, well, if there was a natural disaster or if we were attacked or if we went to war, Americans would unite again. Not so much. Not anymore. Those days are gone. That is forever. There was a natural disaster here and people were, people needed the government to come together and the people to come together. And immediately the left politicized the hurricane before it even touched land, accusing DeSantis of not being prepared, accusing DeSantis of not evacuating quickly enough, et etc., et cetera, and now saying, in the wake of it, we need to uh, use uh, equity uh, as the basis for hurricane r- relief distribution.
3: And two things, Bob. First of all, quick, uh, Americans are banding together. Individuals mm-hmm. do the the Cajun fleet, for example, they do it individually. And number two is look scour. I dare you scour throughout all the statutes in the United States of America, scour the Constitution, and find the word equity. Dare you find the word equity? You will not right on. find it.
2: Right on. By the way, I had to find the word pusillanimous because I thought you made it up. You didn't. Uh, so <laughs> you didn't. I was impressed. And by the way, I, it could have been taken another way. I'll be back after the news.
0: Welcome back to Always Right with Bob France.
4: All right, all right, all right.
0: On AM fourteen twenty, the answer.
2: now, we continue on Always Right Radio with Peter Kirsten, our good friend from the Civil Rights Commission. The United States Civil Rights Commission He's the longest-serving member of that commission.
1: As public health professionals and scholars, we at the Harvard Chan School are committed to equity and social justice, both in our work and in our interactions with the people we serve. We're committed to addressing and and continuing systemic discrimination in our society and the resulting... (laughs) Health-related disparities.
2: I don't know if i, I don't know if I heard that <laughs> professor right there, but she, did she just say we're committed to systemic discrimination? Well, the they missions? are.
3: <laughs> it's true. They are. That is true. They are—they are committed to systemic discrimination, as are many, if not most, schools throughout the country. Unfortunately, systemic discrimination is the watchword. They discriminate on the basis of race to alleviate discrimination on the basis of race. In other words, discrimination is supposed to cure discrimination, but what happens is it begets more discrimination.
2: Wasn't well, that what X. Kennedy said, just about anti-racism. The, yep, uh, the exactly. solution to past racism is more present racism, and the solution to future exactly right. racism is or, or the present racism is future. So, Pete, um, be- before you go into more depth on this, because I know you have been working on this at the Civil Rights Commission for some time now, following very closely the uh, the, the case as it works its way through the courts um, uh, of, uh, of unlawful discrimination based on race. They are booting Asians from who are highly, more highly qualified for from, uh, con- uh, from uh, consideration for acceptance into Harvard because they don't want to have an overly Asian and white campus. And so they are giving priority to uh, people with lesser qualifications, lesser uh, lower test scores and so forth based on their skin color. But, Pete, before you give us the latest on that and the fact that the new Supreme Court's uh, uh, session has begun and they're going to take this up, a lot of people say this is a first-world problem. Why do we care about Harvard, for crying out loud? How many people can afford to go to Harvard anyway? Why do we care what their admissions policies are? Give us the reason why this matters. And, and yeah, it a couple of reasons.
3: Is be- right, good. good. That's a very good question because it is Harvard. And Harvard, for you know, a long time, is considered to be the top university. It's the iconic university in the country, supposedly. Um And because a number of courts, including the Supreme Court in the past, have made reference to Harvard as a model for affirmative action, as if this was the lawful means by which you could discriminate, okay? And you can discriminate lawfully, that is true, in in admissions. The Supreme Court, to its shame, in my estimation, starting back with the Bakke case and Grutter and Graz cases, Fisher t- versus Texas, have permitted discrimination. and They've come up with this alchemy that if you do it just a little bit like this and a little bit like that, then it's okay. It passes constitutional muster, which is absurd. In fact, back during the seminal Grutter and Graz cases, Sandra Day O'Connor in her opinion said, well, we hope that in the next 25 years these types of pre- uh, preferences will not be necessary. Well, guess what? That was 20 years ago. The preferences now are even more on steroids there's no prospect of them being eliminated anytime in the near future, but for the Students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard case currently pending before the Supreme Court, as you know, my colleague Gail Harry and I have an amicus brief there. We had another amicus brief in the past. We had a you know a, a, a cert brief in, in that respect. Harvard discriminates overtly on the basis of race, especially against Asians and whites, but most perniciously against Asians. The, the data is irrefutable. It is depressing. It's infuriating. And Harvard's not the worst. Um, when you look at, first of all, to get into Harvard is pretty tough. You've got to be, you know, the cream of the crop in the main. You've got to have extraordinary SATs, extraordinary GPAs, uh, so on and so forth. Um, but what happens is on those who apply, it is 10 times more likely that you will be admitted if you are black than if you are Asian, um, if you have similar qualifications, same SAT, same same GPA, all the whole thing, okay? 10 times. Uh, In fact, when you look at the data, it's even more troubling because... Asians generally have SAT scores that are not 2 points higher, not 20 points higher, but 218 points higher than the average black admittee. 218 points. In other words, uh, if you look at some of the data, Asians who are in the bottom 10% of, uh, I'm sorry, the the, uh, blacks are in the bottom 10% of the admissions class, are up to 16 times more likely to be admitted than some an Asian who's at the top 10% in terms of qualifications. So there's a clear and unequivocal discrimination going on against Asian Americans, and also against whites. The demarcation kind of totem pole is Asians are most heavily discriminated against by whites, and then Hispanics are favored um, less than blacks are, but they're favored, okay? Blacks are favored more than than any other group. Mm-hmm. This is this is just un-American. People intuitively get this. And what it does is, it, it. Harvard may be an exception because they can get the best of the best usually. And maybe a few other schools can too. But in almost every other school, it results in horrific fallout numbers for those who receive the preferences. And we can go into that. I mean, there's more and more uh, uh, data with respect to that and arguments as to why that's bad, but it's fundamentally un-American. We don't have to argue as to why it's bad. We only have to get into the legality, but we know it's wrong, just like the distribution of hurricane relief funds on the basis of race. That is un-American. We fought civil wars. We done a lot of stuff with respect to uh, race and making sure that there wasn't discrimination on the basis of race, and yet now our elites are intent, on discriminating on the basis of race and thinking that there's no downside to do so. No, it's corrupting of society when you do it, regardless of the motivation, because it tends to, it doesn't tend to, it goes off track immediately, even if it's well-intended. So bottom line here is, very propitiously, I think it's October 31st, Halloween is the oral argument in Students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard, probably sometime, um, you know, Next spring, late spring, there'll be a decision on this. I'm not holding out hope that it's going to reverse Grutter and Graz uh, and go to colorblind admissions, but I'm hopeful it's something more sane. Now, of course, my brief says, look, just like John Roberts said in Parents Involved versus Seattle School District, he said the way to stop discrimination on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race. It's pretty simple. And then what you do is you do all the heavy lifting, the hard work that our elites assiduously avoid in reforming our schools, teaching, reading, writing, and arithmetic instead of gender studies and all these other things, trying to make sure that our kids, K through 12, can compete against the Chinese. Right now we're 38th in math in the world. The United States of America is 38th in math in the world. Do that hard work instead of trying to play alchemist at the upper levels, at Harvard or at the university level or law school level.
2: Um, there's a lot of ground there to cover, and I can't really follow up on all of it, obviously. Um, you have talked uh, at, well, let me, let me hit two things. One, you have talked at length, and I don't think you mentioned it in this case, what a disservice it is to the black students who are, who are admitted great who are not qualified that is a part of this they're victims in this people don't realize it you know while they victimize the asian and white students who are more highly qualified in a given situation with higher scores higher gpas etc cetera, etc cetera, they're also victimizing the black student that they give a spot to and you say well how you're letting them into harvard and you've pointed out many many times pete they can't handle the work at Harvard, and not because they're black, just because they happen to be students who, who aren't good enough to, to handle the work at Harvard, and they end up dropping out at a very very disproportionate rate, or they graduate with D averages that don't do them any good whatsoever when they go into the work world. Whereas had they been rejected, which their qualifications and their merit would would have would have uh you know would have would have dictated uh if they get rejected then they go to a school where they can do very, very well at it and graduate with a B or an A average and have a lot better opportunities in future employment. That part of this is something that I, I don't know if it's been brought up before the courts. It's something you and I have brought up in the Court of Public Opinion. Is that is that something that's even considered by Harvard, do you think, in their justification of their own no, policies?
3: It's not it's not considered by Harvard. And uh I have brought it up in the past in in previous briefs and in fact in one case Galea was chastised back about, oh, I don't know how many years ago it was now, because he raised an issue that I had, and Gail Harriet, my colleague, we filed a joint brief, had in our briefs, and that is just what you said, that when you have, Harvard's a little bit of an exception, because they do have the luxury, in addition to maybe one or two other schools, of taking the cream of the crop, okay, so it's less likely that somebody's going to be dropping out of a Harvard. But almost every other school, because of the preferences, people are being placed in schools that are beyond their qualifications and cause them more likely to indicate to drop out, get bad scores. And what that does, among other things, is it reinforces stereotypes. It really does. If you're st- sitting there and you're seeing black students flunk out or do poorly, then it reinforces stereotypes, if anything else. At UCLA, for example, law school, blacks are four times, or uh, this is not current data. This was uh, maybe about six or seven years ago, but, um, it, but it's, it hardly ever varies, okay? Okay. Um, Black law students were four times as likely to flunk the bar exam, but they were disproportionately concentrated also in the bottom 10% of the class. This doesn't do anybody any good. Nope. They could have achieved, and what you find is an overwhelming percentage of black doctors, engineers, other people like that, come from HBCUs, which do a phenomenal job, first of all. But also, we had hearings at the Civil Rights Commission about this. If we had two hours, I could go through the data on this with you bottom line here is when anybody, any student, regardless of color, is in an environment where they can compete on their own merit, mm-hmm. they will achieve much more. Mm-hmm. And we are doing a disservice not just to those individual uh, students, but we're doing a disservice to society generally, and we're corrupting the whole notion of higher education. We're already eliminating in many areas, they're take, they're no longer considering SATs or any other standardized tests, not because they're not accurate measures of pre, uh, or of success at the collegiate level, but because, unfortunately, certain segments of the population don't do that well. They're also eliminating all kinds of other testing programs, medical schools, for example. They're eliminating all kinds of testing programs, which is frightening, frankly, because they're, they're finding that too many people of certain groups are flunking out, and they can't have that because okay. equity, you know. Okay. So this is that something that hurts. It hurts everybody. <clears throat> it's generally corrupting to society anyway, okay. regardless of admission standards.
2: Okay, Pete, I want to leave a little bit of time here to wrap this uh, on this question. As you and I prepared our conversation this morning, I said something kind of jokingly, but I, I, want, to, I want to ask it now maybe only half-jokingly. How can Katanji Brown-Jackson sit on this new Supreme Court uh, at the start of this session and hear arguments on this case um, given the fact that she is literally... Um, A beneficiary of the same policy. Joe Biden said he would reject all white applicants from consideration for Supreme Court justice. He would reject all males. He would only give this spot to a black female. Um, Katanji Brown is that black female. She has been given the same exact thing that a that a that a that an underqualified Harvard student of color is rejecting people who are look different than than she does, uh, who may be more qualified, have a higher basis of merit for this uh, you know for acceptance into Harvard. How can she sit on uh, a case like this when she is literally the beneficiary? And and, and oh by the way. Ketanji Brown-Jackson, I wonder how she's going to sit on on any case involving uh, discrimination against women, particularly since she declared she doesn't know what one is because she's not a yeah, biologist.
3: Lo- yeah, a lot to unpack there. First of all, there's nothing specifically with respect to disciplinary sure. rules, as you know, that precludes this, except for one thing. She sits on the Board of Trustees of Harvard, and I think there was a uh, – they had to go through, you know, an ethical – screen to determine whether or not she could sit on this particular case. I think she was on the board of governors of Harvard or the trustees of Harvard or something of that nature, so there could have been a conflict there. Uh, But I understand your point, and that is that she's a direct beneficiary of this, and of course, you know, how can she do that? It's also her alma mater, blah, 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 and. We shouldn't even be having this discussion, is the point, Bob. If we had colorblind admissions, which we could have and everybody could succeed, and I guarantee you blacks and other minorities, Hispanics, would begin to improve their scholastic aptitude much more readily if you held everybody to the same standard. But no, totally we're, trying play, we're trying to play this uh, educational <clears throat> alchemist here. We've been doing it now for, you know, the Bakke case was 50 years ago. Fifty years we've been doing it's been affirmative action has been in place for more than fifty years, and we don't see really any marginal uh, closing of the gaps. So maybe every once in a while, what's the old thing about doing the same thing over and over and again, expecting a different result, is the definition of insanity. Maybe we want to try something else. And again, as I say, you gotta do the hard work of K through twelve also. Family formation issues, regardless of what kind of stellar school you may have, kids aren't going to do that well, or put it another way. They're going to do much better if they have an intact family, but we have our policies in place right now from progressives augur against all of that. And we're going to reap the whirlwind as a result. So as long as we don't take care of the foundational problems, we're going to continue to see these disparities. And progressives will have nothing but cosmetics to try to mask what's going on. And it's going to hurt everybody in our society.
2: Um, super quick, Pete, on the, the last part of that. Uh, just Ketanji Brown-Jackson. Could she hear a case on, on just sexual discrimination against women if she has declared <laughs> in her nomination that she, she doesn't know what yeah. a woman is?
3: Well, you know, there there are legal rules, and then there's societal rules. I mean, common sense says it doesn't make a so whole lot of sense for her to be hearing those kinds of cases right? when she says, I don't know what a female is. From my perspective, in a sane society, if this were, you know, I'm not saying it was sane back there, but it was a little bit more sane, it was 1985 in some nominee had made that statement, it would be immediate, immediate cause for disqualification. But here we are today, we don't, you know, men can give birth and men can lactate and all these other things. Um, but there is a serious issue here, and if I were on the panel, and this is what I do at the Civil Rights Commission, I think the question when it was posed to her was a good question, but the follow-up was inadequate. They should have asked, well, Ms. Jackson, literally, Ms. Jack, this is serious stuff, this is the Supreme Court, if you cannot define a woman, how are you going to decide a title Nine case. Yeah. How are you going to decide a Title VII case? If you don't know what a woman is, you can't decide sex discrimination cases. What about these, all these other gender cases? How will you do it? Sexual harassment, you name it. How are you going to do that? Ms. Jackson, are you a woman? How do you know? I mean, this is just—we, where we are in society today. It's not good. It's beyond simple parody. This is starting to merge into dangerous territory. We've got to rectify this immediately. We've got to become sane again.
2: I think from this point forward, one thing we have proven is that for all future Supreme Court nominees, the questioning must be done by you and me, and that's it.
3: <laughs> I would have fun. And I'll tell you something, Bob. <laughs> I have written uh, not on Supreme Court nominees, as you know. I've testified in, in a gazillion of them, but um, I've written to various committees of Congress out of frustration, admittedly, sometimes saying, "Please." In the past, what Congress would do, and you may have seen this when you were growing up, they would have special counsel who would pose the questions in hearings rather than have the inept congressman. I don't mean I don't mean to paint a broad brush. No, no, I Jordan, yeah, yeah. yeah. of course, and of course, right. but but they would have people who were trained. Uh, questioners or cross-examiners do it, and I beg them. And in in fact, every time I get a call from, almost weekly, I get a call from some committee saying, can you testify in X, Y, and Z? And what I say to them is, look, I'm happy to testify when I have the time, but I'd more like to cross-examine your witnesses. Bingo! Some of these witnesses say things that are how, I mean, Ketanji Brown-Jackson is just one example, but we've had these people out there saying ridiculous things, and some congressmen, I saw Josh Hawley, for example, do a pretty good job, you know, Ted Cruz does a good job, Mike Lee from time to time, although he's he's very, you know, upright and constitutional-oriented, does a good job, and Tom Cotton can, too, Um, but... They're not as mean as I am. <laughs> they don't do it for a living. You know? I'd well, love to do it, and it would be elucidating. I mean, we would. would let the public see the inanity of many of the things that the left proposes or maintains.
2: Peter Kersenow, I'll tell you what, I would rather give you five minutes with the Supreme Court nominee than one play in a bronze game. It uh, would mean a lot more to me to see you have Even if it was minutes. a Super Bowl, winning touchdown, yes. touchdown catch. Yes. Guaranteed. If, if it was in cross-examination of the witness, not... Uh, or of the uh, of the uh, nominee, I should say, not just, you know, testimony, but if you were able to actually ask questions, uh, I would take those five minutes over your five-yard catch. Yes, sir. Sorry to Football's say football Football's more important. <laughs> Pete, thank you, my friend. Take care, Bob. That's Kirsten now at AM 1420, the answer with us. It's 1055. We're going to go to our newscast now. And on the other side of the news, are Democrats patriots? Can they be patriots? Really interesting article. Written by David Strom in HotAir.com. We're going to talk about that question. Can Democrats be patriots or are they patriots? David Strom will join us to answer that question. Coming up, Always Right Radio, AM 1420, The Answer.
0: There's no
1: disguising it.
0: It really comes as no surprise to find that you planned it all along.
1: Have the courage to say to our enemies, there is a price we will not pay. There is a point beyond which they must not advance.
0: This is Always Right Radio with Bob Frantz on AM 1420, The Answer.
2: Onward we roll now into hour number three. Nine minutes past 11 o'clock on this Tuesday, fourth morning, tenth month, the year of our Lord twenty twenty two terrific terrific analysis by Peter Kirstennel last uh, hour uh i mean really uh he hit it out of the park particularly in the harvard uh, admission scandal uh the case that is now before the Supreme court but also on Kamala Harris pledging to <laughs> pledging to um use racial discrimination in the dissemination of hurricane aid. How about that? Fortunately, FEMA said, no, she's wrong. We played that for her yesterday. That is not happening. Everybody that is in need will be able to apply for it and receive it, Uh, not based on skin color, but it is uh, quite telling that this is what the vice president of the United States thinks. And the odds are very, very good that her boss... Uh, Joe Biden would have said the exact same thing. Absolutely, equity number one. And that's because, well, Democrats are not committed to co- the Constitution. They're not consti- uh, committed to fundamental fairness. They're not committed to, um, you know, the, the, the foundational principles of this country. They're committed to identity politics. They're committed to uh, first advancing their own agenda, their own personal narratives. Then they'll worry about the country as a whole. In fact, one might even... Ask the question, and I have asked this question before. Do Democrats, I ask this every morning when we do our Pledge of Allegiance. I invite you to stand. I invite you to say the pledge with us. I know how important it is to you. I invite you to look at a flag, and then I always say, if you are a believer in you know, Joe Biden's administration, if you are a believer in this big government, top-down approach to taking away people's individual rights... Uh, and, uh, and, and letting the government make these decisions, then you don't understand what this flag represents anyway. And I question left wing, uh, left-wingers' patriotism. And so we asked that question. Are Democrats patriots? Can Democrats be patriots? Well, I was just kind of banging around the Internet last night, bumping around from site to site, and I came across uh, HotAir.com, which is a Salem property, and I'm very happy about that. But I came across an article on HotAir.com that asked the question, Are Democrats Patriots? And I read it, and it just kind of convinced me that the answer to that question is general. There's, of course, no way to say that for everyone. It's not true to a man or to a woman. But uh, on a a large-scale basis, the Democrat Party is not committed to American patriotism, to the American constitutional principles and foundation. They are, in fact, committed to changing America, fundamentally transforming it into something else. And if you're going to change it into something else, then I think it's very, very hard to say that you are patriotic toward it. So, David Strom wrote this piece. David Strom is an associate editor, or assistant editor, rather, at hotair.com. And I asked him to come on to talk about this a little bit more. And uh, David Strom joins us right now on AM 1420 The Answer. David, good morning. How are you? I'm doing
4: great. How about yourself?
2: I'm good, too. Um, I'd, I'd feel a lot better. Look, David, let me dive into this with this one, because I've said this since, uh, you know, Hurricane Ian made landfall, and we see the destruction and we see the recovery and rescue uh, efforts that are underway right now. In this country, a lot of people have said, boy, I wish we were like it was back on September Twelfth of two thousand one boy after that terrible terrible disaster americans really came together all of our divisions all of our you know differing ideas and ideologies went out the window we were all americans boy we come together in times of crisis we just watched a hurricane david and the left has done nothing but, even before the hurricane made landfall, politicized it, attacked the governor of Florida, is not ready to leave, not able to handle an emergency, pledged to uh, distribute aid based on race. I mean, I don't know that there's ever anything that could happen now that would bring Democrats back around to the side of let's be one country and let's be patriotic and let's unite with the other side again.
4: Well, and I also think that uh, we have a bit of nostalgia for the post-9-11 moment because uh, it is true that most people came together, but uh, I was in my uh, 30s when that happened, and I was struck that within a few days you were already seeing Democrats making fun of George Bush. He was reading My Pet Goat to kids. Uh you know he was too afraid to go back to washington d c uh They were actually uh laying the groundwork for attacking Republicans within days right. of nine eleven so uh it's easy to overstate how unified we were then, and certainly by two thousand and two uh the Democrats were in full on attack mode again. Uh, I actually think that the last truly patriotic Democrat president we had was John Kennedy. Uh, although I do not think that either Jimmy Carter or Bill Clinton hated America. Uh, but hating America is now very much on brand for the Democrat party. I mean, you, uh, we constantly are told we're racist, sexist, homophobic, deplorable. Uh, and anyone who is not uh, an internationalist is, uh, you know, some sort of... A semi-fascist, popular, according popular, to Joe Biden. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, you know, they equate the American flag with the Nazi flag, uh, because it all sort of boils down to this idea that if you believe in the very idea of a nation then uh, there's something wrong with you. That's why we have open borders. That's why they hate uh, Maloney in, uh, in Italy. Uh, you know, you sort of go down the list, and all the people they dislike have one thing in common, which is, you know, they believe in God, the family, and country.
2: You um, We're talking with David Strom, the assistant editor for HotAir.com. Uh, and he wrote a piece asking the question, are Democrats patriots? Your jumping off point was Jonathan Part of the Washington Post and MSNBC yep. saying that Democrats need to retake the high ground on patriotism. Uh, and that, you know, this idea that patriotism is associate, associated with Republicans needs to be quashed because they are the real patriots. I'd like to know wh- what exactly do they mean by retake the high ground? When did they have it? When did they have the the reputation and the actions that would warrant such a reputation that said we are believers in America, in its foundational principles, in its constitution, uh, in its history, you know, that we love this country? I don't know when they ever had that high ground.
4: Well, I think that, again, going back to Kennedy, and I I, I should make clear, I actually think, I used to idolize John Kennedy because I thought he was a great speaker, Uh, but he was a terrible president. And I, you know, I've got to write about this uh, someday. Uh, but I think he was a genuine—he was a genuine patriot, uh, and he called on people to be uh, patriots and p- patriotics, and he clearly believed that American values were worth promoting. Uh, it, but I think he was the last American president.
2: I also think uh, he was a minority. I think he was a minority oh, yeah. in his own party. Not that there weren't patriotic Kennedy Democrats. I think there were. And I'm, I'm, you know, I was born after Kennedy died. So, you know, as I, I mean, I have to do this from a, the vantage point of history. But um, I know there were Kennedy Democrats who were considered, today would be considered conservatives. They would have absolutely oh, yeah. no place whatsoever in the modern day Democrat Party. But when I asked the high ground, I don't recall a time, even as I look back, no. when Democrats were, were considered the flag bearers and the Republicans were the ones who wanted to tear it all down i don't think there was ever the reverse of what we have now
4: uh well i think that's probably accurate but don't forget we are talking about democrats who believe they have the moral high ground on everything
2: yeah Uh, and plus they're the ones who get to write the history or revise it as time goes on
4: well exactly uh and you know if you look at this from capehart's perspective uh the subtext really isn't- uh, isn't about whether Democrats should be patriotic the the what he's hoping for is that they can market themselves as patriotic because he understands that uh and there still are a few Democrats who do understand that if you spend all your time hating on voters, eventually they're going to quit voting for you and that's the real problem i mean there you know the modern left is interested in two things: money and power that's it uh and you have to look at everything they do through that lens uh Matt Walsh uh you know did some wonderful re- investigative reporting about uh you know how in the transgender uh ideology out there, if you go far enough back. It's all about money. I mean, the the Vanderbilt is doing transgender surgeries. And when they talk to each other and it's on film, it's not about helping people. It's about the money. Think of all the money we can get. Uh, and so, money and power. It was somewhere yes, in the neighborhood, was, if
2: I remember reading what Walsh wrote about that, it was like between, and it was on film, but i 40000 forty to $60,000 per procedure. That's what they're talking about. They are literally talking about getting rich by uh, um, surgically mutilating young kids' bodies.
4: Yeah, and uh, I think that, that that also translates into power for the establishment, because imagine being someone who has mutilated themselves and has gone all in on what is essentially a cult. Well, you're going to be very tied to those cult leaders. And, you know, so if you look uh, at at what's been happening is you've got people recruiting people into a cult, uh, permanently altering them and then making sure that they're going to be evangelists and advocates and voters for you. Uh, and, you know, if you really look at this from a larger perspective, it's all of a piece. This is the cultural Marxists trying to take over. Uh, and uh, uh, it's, it's remarkable how successful they have been. Uh, but they own the media. Uh, they own the bureaucracy, they own educational institutions, they own universities, and right now they're in charge of Washington, D.C. And, you know, I think that this election, uh, if you are not voting anyone out who is behind any of these really horrible things that are being done to kids, if you are not voting those people out, over anything else there's something wrong with
2: you yeah you know let, let's go a little deeper into that um it, personally i don't think it's as surprising as you do uh that they're able to 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 pull off what they are because they control so many of the crucial mechanisms uh to control the mindset of people um and, and i mean literally everything from you know uh big tech uh to yep. the, the the legacy media to academia, both at the higher level and at the primary levels and the high school levels, <clears throat> uh, they control big business. They control advertising. They can cancel people by, by by pulling advertising from people who express disagreement. All of these things are just flat out Democrat weapons. So I'm not surprised that they they get you know all these things done that they do. Uh, in fact, I'm surprised they haven't been more successful at it. Um, but but just to respond quickly to the part about the trans movement and that part of the culture war, um, I feel like the LGBTQ community, knowing they can't have children because two women cannot conceive a child and two males cannot conceive a child, they can't have children to turn the next generation into their favor, so they have to recruit them. And they have to groom them, and they go into the schools, and they get them, and they drag show them, and they, uh, you know, uh, uh, expose them to all kinds of different alternative lifestyle things through books, through, uh, uh, uh websites, through all of the different techniques that we are watching that Matt has done a great job of exploiting, or exposing rather, and so many others have as well. Do you feel like that's kind of the, that's kind of the 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 mo here for the the culture war that we're talking about in order to to win this in the long game they need more fighters for their side and since they can't bear them they'll they'll recruit them
4: oh i think that's absolutely right and you know i i just wrote a piece that was published last night uh about precisely this uh you remember all uh, all those tv news reports about kids Walking out of school in Virginia to protest, you know, the supposedly anti-trans stuff that Governor Youngkin did. It was all over the news. Uh, Well, it turns out that the guy who uh, was uh, organizing all this also has uh, a website that lures kids, literally lures them away from their parents. Pays them money uh, and gives them new identity, so that they can uh, and, and they can live with queer-friendly adults. Uh, the very same people uh, are doing that, and yet we've got the news media out there promoting uh, what these people are doing, and not telling you that their plan actually is to groom kids. To become you know I mean we don 't know exactly what 's happening in those queer friendly homes, but at least to live among that queer community i mean it 's the equivalent of kidnapping
2: yes, it is uh, and, and and to bring and, it david to bring it to the back to the the core point that you wrote your article about about Democrats being patriots. Being patriotic to America, believing in America, means believing in what America was founded upon. And that that is the nuclear family. The basis of Western civilization is the nuclear family. A married mother, a married father, raising their children in the same manner. And then, uh, you know, hopefully, uh, you know, they grow up to do the same thing and replicate the process and procreate and and propagate the species and so forth. And what you are describing right now is a literal and deliberate attempt to crush the nuclear family, to take the kids away from the parents. Don't raise them in that environment. Raise them in an alternative alternative environment. So if – and every one of these people you're talking about, or overwhelmingly anyway, they all vote Democrat. So by that measure alone, they cannot – Democrats cannot be or claim the mantle of patriotism.
4: Oh, that's absolutely right. I mean, if you look at what's happening – I mean, what are basic American values? As you mentioned, you know, the family – it's the core social unit. Uh, next thing you can look at is the Bill of Rights, which spells out you—you know—government. You may not do these things, uh, and yet we've got uh, the the National School Boards Association asking for the National Guard, to, asking the Justice Department to deploy the National Guard to suppress parents who dissent. Just yesterday. Uh, the American Medical Associations, the the Children's Hospitals, and uh, uh, I forget what the third. Oh, the pediatrician yeah. petitioned Merrick Garland, uh, uh, the uh, attorney general, to investigate people like Matt Walsh and Christopher Rufo, <laughs> and I've been writing a lot about this, so I'm expecting a knock on my door from the FBI, uh, and they're accusing us of inciting terrorism. Uh, they're about depression. I'll, I'll tell you one other thing. The day after I came on hot air, uh, I've only been there for three weeks. The day after, uh, my account on Facebook was restricted. <laughs> and uh, there you go. So, yeah. I mean, it's just, uh, it, it's big tech. Uh, it's big government, big media. Uh, it's all about destroying America. It's That's pretty right.
2: simple. Well, I'm going to boil this down to one line in your article. Because uh, I think that's the best way to do it You can't think that the underlying ideals of America are evil And simultaneously claim to be patriotic That's just it, that's it Those things are diametrically opposite of one another You cannot believe that America is evil And yet say you are patriotic and love America It is just simply not possible Alright, well David Strom is the associate editor at Hot Air Only for three weeks And he's already off to a roaring start We'll continue to watch your work uh, Keep a surprise of anything important and, uh, and I'm sure we'll talk again
4: all right. Sounds good. Thanks.
2: Thank you, David. Appreciate it. It's 1127. We'll get to the news now and come back. Uh, one final short segment to come, uh, but if you want to be a part of it, you better dial right now, 216-901-0945. Always right radio on AM 1420, the answer.
0: Important news.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have
0: your attention? I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story. Always right with Bob France. I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. On AM 1420, The Answer.
2: All right, 11:36 now. Always Right Radio on AM 1420, The Answer. We've been swamped today. Great guests from uh, start to finish, so my apologies uh, for not being able to take calls today, but um, I hope you do understand. And I also want to give you a couple of things here. This is important. Uh, My friend Mario Innocenzi, who runs uh, Mario's Barbershop in Parma, is doing Mario-type things again. Uh, He's done just so much uh, great philanthropic work trying to help uh, people in need whenever there are disasters and tragedies. We had massive flooding in Kentucky if you recall and obviously a couple of years ago massive flooding in Texas and uh every time there is uh you know there are events like this that happen Mario just puts his uh you know he he just puts his whole self into trying to to uh to assist and uh he goes to great expense to rent trucks and uh, and then just asks us to help fill them with donations to help the people who are in grave need right now. So Mario's Barbershop, Mario and uh, the Barbershop as a business, are accepting donations, non-perishable food items, goods for the victims of Florida. Anything you can think of, if you would put yourself into their shoes, your home has been blown away, your business has been blown away, flooded, destroyed, etc., all of the things that you need for your daily, daily life just to survive this. Uh, If you've got babies, diapers, uh, uh, hygiene supplies, uh, gloves, uh, socks, uh, clothing, pajamas, blankets, pillows, bedding, food, snacks for the kids in shelters, gift cards so they can go buy the things that they need, like gift cards to places like Home Depot, prepaid gas cards for when the gas stations are up and running again, uh, tarps, rakes, just about anything and everything you could think of, if you were in the situation, if a massive storm blew through here, maybe a tornado, because we're much more prone to tornadoes in northeast Ohio than we are to hurricanes, if it hit you, what would you need to try to get through this very tough time and then start the road to recovery? So uh, here's what we need. We need you to make those donations. Uh, you can reach Mario for details on this at 216-520-1977. Two one six five two zero nineteen seventy seven, or you can drop off donations at the barbershop 7526 Broadview Road. Uh he's also setting up a fundraiser for travel and food expenses uh, uh for the volunteers and again just ask Mario how you can contribute at 2165201977 or again just make a donation call and donate to the fuel and travel expenses for the volunteers. Anything that's left over will be donated to the local spot where the dropping uh, donations will be dropped off at. So all this information is also on Facebook. So if you are a friend or a follower of Mario's Barbershop, there you can find that information on Facebook. So Mario, thank you for what you do. It's uh, it's tremendously important work. So um, tomorrow uh, on the program, I'm gonna. I don't want to do this now because we just don't have time. <clears throat> but I'm fascinated by this uh, this discussion somebody who I only see who was the original or, uh who is uh, Jeff somebody named Jeff who is a Facebook friend uh originated this post and it shows a picture of a guy walking or walking on it's probably just a meme but it has really sparked an interesting conversation i want you to think about it too and i want you to call me tomorrow because we'll have plenty of time for tomorrow calls tomorrow uh to to answer these questions but the uh, the meme shows a guy walking down a street, and it says, again, I think it's probably not what this guy was doing, but it's just a point that was being made. And what it says is, walking home from brunch after tipping my waitress 0% because she was wearing a BLM pin. And this got tons of people responding. It's got a lot of likes, a lot of loves, a lot of people laughing and... Other people saying this is, quote, cruel and unfair. You got the service. You have to pay the tip. Do you? Do you really? And, again, I don't want to take calls on this now because i only got about three and a half minutes left in the show. But I want you to think about it. And, uh, in fact, I may go ahead and share this over to my page on Facebook. And if you happen to be following me there, uh, you can you can participate that way as well. And we'll read some of the answers on the air tomorrow. But I, I was thinking about this, and, I, and I, in no way, shape, or form should I ever be obligated to contribute to a fund that someone might use to go and buy more Marxist propaganda to wear to uh, their job while they're serving the public. I don't think I should have to contribute to that, and I don't think I would contribute to that. And I don't think it's cruel, and I don't think it's unfair, and I think it is absolutely my right She may have the right, not may, does. I work for CFFS, Citizens for Free Speech. She has the right to free speech and expression by putting whatever pins she wants on her apron or her uniform. And I have a right to my expression in response. And my expression would be to not give her money to go buy more Marxist propaganda. No, not doing that. I'll pay my bill for the food. I'll pay my bill for the preparation and cooking of that food. I'll pay my bill for the delivery of that food from kitchen to table. Anything extra that I choose to give is up to me. And if somebody is going to turn my dining experience into a political debate, or if somebody's going to turn my dining experience into a, an indoctrination center like, like a school, to the point where I have to be irritated by that and then either engage her in a conversation about it or teach her a financial lesson about capitalism, then I'm probably going to go ahead and make my expression that way, and I'm going to teach her a lesson about capitalism. If you're a believer in BLM and Marxism anyway, well, then you shouldn't want capitalist dollars. You shouldn't want that at all. Your money should come from the government. You don't need it from me. But the bottom line is, and, and I want to reverse it, too, and we'll talk more about it in tomorrow in a lot more depth. But the bottom line is, if you're an ardent pro-lifer and you're a server at a restaurant and you wear a pin that says abortion is murder, you might be right. And, in fact, you are right because I agree. I'm a pro-lifer, too. But if you wear a pin that says abortion is murder, chances are you're going to have a whole lot of people not giving you tips because they're going to be infuriated by it. And guess what? That will be their right. And it will be your fault that you turned a dining experience at a restaurant into a political debate that nobody wanted to have. So just a really interesting thing. I've been spending some of my time during the commercial breaks today responding to some of these um, what I believe to be insanely ridiculous uh, comments on this. But I think it's it's a part of the culture right now. We, we have views and there are places to air those views. There are places not to air those views. Uh, we talk about it all the time. We talk about it all the time about, you know, uh, uh, time and place, appropriateness. You know, the time and place for educating children about sex and sexuality and sexual orientation is not schools and not in kindergarten or first grade, second grade, third grade or fourth grade for that matter. Time and place is appropriate. And if you pay the price, quite literally, or maybe in this case, if you don't get paid the price you were hoping to get paid, In terms of a gratuity, well, then maybe you are learning a lesson about time and place the hard way. But I just found that fascinating. Something I'm I'm going to keep up on social. I'll put it on Truth Social, too. If you haven't yet gotten an account on Trump's Truth Social, uh, do so and find me there. I'm at Always Right on uh, Truth Social. Always Right, uh, WHK, and you can find me there, and we'll have this discussion online as as well as on the air. So, uh, thanks very much to my guests, Jim Jordan, Peter Kersenau, and uh, David Strom. And thanks to you for listening. We'll see you tomorrow on Always Great Radio. Have
0: a great day. Bye bye.
1: Let's go, Brandon